So again, we're talking about the ugly sweater. And what is that all about? Well, to be real honest, it's just a really nice way of talking about stress during the holidays. We all have an opportunity to uh, get a little stressed out during the Christmas season. In fact, for many of us, the holiday season is the pinnacle of stress in our life. It's when we just get, man, jam-packed with stress. See, there used to be this holiday, Thanksgiving, that happened and it had like a really rea- relaxing uh, kind of idea behind it, a really relaxing weekend where we could actually eat ourselves full of turkey, lay on the couch for a few hours, watch a little football, maybe take a nap, and then go about and do it all over again. And really, the Thanksgiving holiday has been overshadowed by Black Friday and Black Friday sales. And Black Friday is getting overshadowed even by Christmas. And Christmas is starting earlier and earlier. So now we have Halloween ends. And the moment Halloween is over, we have this new holiday that's Thanks Blackmas. Thanksgiving, Black Friday, and Christmas all mashed into one. And we just kind of go from one holiday event to the next. And it can create a lot of stress in our life, a lot of stress. In fact, some of us, it's, it's, a, little bit, it's a little bit overwhelming. Now, there's some of you that love Christmas. And, and I'm not a total Grinch. I like Christmas. But it's there, the commercialization, some of the stuff around Christmas, I have a real hard time with. To me, to me decorations just look like work. And look, anything other than work, I know they're pretty, I know people love them, I know my wife loves to put up the tree and make it beautiful, and she does a good job, but to me, that's nothing but work. It's kind of like, you know, you hear these folks that, that they just, as soon as the Christmas music starts playing, they're all hyped and excited, and I can't stand Michael Buble. Like, I can't, I don't want to hear another song from that guy. Scott has already posted on my Facebook page from the first service, a Michael Buble song, or however you say his last name, and I will not play it because I... I've heard, I'll hear it 15,000 times throughout the Christmas season, so it doesn't matter. I'll hear it in some store anyway. But there's this lie kind of we tell ourselves around Christmas, the stressful things that, that we go through, the stressful moments that we're pushing through, we tell ourselves they're good, they're fun, they're for the holidays. It's kind of like a runner. You meet someone who's a runner and they tell you, I love that runner's high, that second win. They're liars. There's no runner's high. I have run myself to death. I've never hit a runner's high. I've never hit that second win. And if, by the way, I hate running so much that if if I'm running, someone's chasing me, you should run too. Like that's the only reason you're gonna find me running anywhere. Or the fridge is empty and I need to run the grocery store. That's That's about it. But if you get married, you have different, you know, expectations. My wife had massively different expectations when it came to Christmas than I had. Massively different. Her, her house and, and her house growing up, they put up the Christmas tree like Thanksgiving day or the day just after Thanksgiving on Black Friday. They were really quick to put up the decorations. And I, again, I look at it as like work, man. I don't want to do more work. I want to relax through this holiday season. You know, my kids have a fake imaginary elf that they believe roams around our house at night. I figure, why can't we have an imaginary tree in the corner and we can all imagine how beautiful it looks? That doesn't work out too well. But Christmas becomes this microcosm. Christmas becomes a true microcosm of what happens in our life throughout the year, where we're met with stress, how we manage that stress, and what it looks like in the future. How we learn to take in those, those pressure points of stress and manage them and effectively mitigate them in our life. So Christmas becomes that, that microcosm that we're very used to. 
There's 17,000 to-dos on a list in a time frame that's completely irrational, yet we tell ourselves we're, gonna get it, we're going to get it all done. If you can maintain a spiritual life at Christmas, you can maintain a spiritual life throughout the rest of the year. See, Lori and I, we have the privilege of walking with people through very intense, difficult times in their life. And we have watched some folks who are just hitting high points in their spirituality. They have a balance of their spiritual life, of their work life, of their family life. They're doing a really good job of digging into what it is to be a discipled Christian. We've watched these folks as they go through the tension of the Christmas season. They've got to get everything done. They've got to make sure they've got all the presents. All the decorations are up. They've got to make sure they've got the food ready to go. And we watch them through the Christmas season just kind of get off course a little bit. And as they get off course, what happens? They stop coming to church. Some of them never come back to church. We've noticed folks who have been on a great track and all of a sudden they hit the Christmas season in preparation to celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus, the whole reason we have church anyway, and the stress of the Christmas season just knocks them off kilter. It knocks them, knocks them out of their stride. In fact, Christmas season, we can, we can see that December and January season and leading up through Christmas is a time frame where suicides start to increase. It's a time frame where people are diagnosed with clinical depression more than any other time frame throughout the year. We like to blame it on just the cloudiness of the sky and that it's a little drizzly and rainy or snowy. We like to blame it on the idea that folks can't get out and enjoy the sunshine, but it has more to do with the social pressures that we put on ourselves, the social pressures that we live through during the Christmas season. There's general patterns that accompany stress that most of us are aware of. Whether we want to admit it or not, we're aware of these general patterns. And the stress around the holidays for so many people brings a terrible sense of stress that they just can't seem to mitigate or get around. And how we respond to stress, really the plan that we have in attacking stress is our ugly sweater. Right, so many of us have those ugly sweaters. Mine today is not really a sweater, it's a t-shirt. And it says, what is this, son of a nutcracker from one of my favorite movies ever, Elf. It is the, one of the best Christmas movies. There's Home Alone, there's Elf, there's a few out there uh, that you might like. And obviously I like comedies. Uh, so I can, we can argue if Die Hard's a Christmas movie or not. It's kind of on the fence there, depending on who you are. Um, I'm not suggesting you watch Die Hard. I'm just saying there's arguments about it. So the pastor did not say go watch Die Hard, just so you're aware. <laughs> anyway, I'm not, I'm not gonna expand on anything there. We're done with that one, okay. So uh, if you live long enough, you're gonna go through stress. You're gonna have very tense times of stress where stress mounts and builds in your life and it's difficult. There's gonna be moments where stress suddenly hits you. It's just this abrupt, this, this abrupt hit to the stomach, man. And there's this life of stress that you've got to work through and manage through. And in those moments, you begin to feel a certain way about God. And in that moment, you can also believe that God feels a certain way about you. And it starts to tint and change our picture of who we are. Again, it's that Christmas sweater. It's something we're comfortable with. Right, my, <coughs> excuse me, my mother-in-law has a Christmas outfit that she obviously bought in like 1982. You can tell by the pattern and the cut. And she loves that thing. She brings out every Christmas. It's like a mock turtleneck thing that she wears all the time in the holiday season. She's not here. I'm not gonna pick on her too much. If she were here, I'd still say it. But it's, it's, a, it's a shirt that, 
you know, she's comfortable in. That when the holidays come, she pulls it out and something that she likes, that she enjoys. I'm sure it's reminiscent of Christmas past and she wraps that thing on herself and it just, man, it's just comfortable. And we all have things like that in our life, right? The ugly sweater that didn't start out ugly, but you bought it in the 70s when fashion was a little different. And now it's not exactly fashionable to wear. Or maybe it's gone through the wash just one too many times and you can't quite make out the pattern anymore. Or maybe it's been snagged one too many times and it just looks like it's ratty and falling apart. See, we all have these Christmas sweaters, these holiday sweaters that we wrap on ourselves. They're the old way of doing things. They're the old behavior patterns that we fall into in a default manner. And behavior patterns aren't bad or good, they just are. They just are patterns that we fall to because it's the default. It's what we know, it's what's comfortable. So we kind of click over into, into those patterns. And in our lives, we can get so caught up whether we're doing the right or the wrong thing and how we're managing stress that we just default back to how we do life and how we manage stress. See, it's, it's much like running the hurdles. If you've ever seen an athlete who runs hurdles, you watch that upper half of their body and it almost looks like it floats in the air. And that bottom half of their body is in perfect stride and they look almost like a gazelle just running through the jungle. And they're just, man, these perfect strides over these hurdles. It's beautiful to watch, it's almost tranquil. But the moment that footing gets a little unsure, the moment that footing gets a little shaky, what happens? The whole picture starts to wobble. The upper half and the bottom half start to wobble. Next thing you know, they're tumbling over one hurdle after another. And that's really what we go for is the wrecks. It's really what we watch for is the moment someone's gonna slip up and fall. But it's, we can all see it coming. If they don't get their stride back, we know that it's just a matter of time. They're gonna hit that hurdle. They're gonna tumble. That, that tense ooh moment when we're watching the hurdles race. The same thing's true for our life and how we manage stress. We can be in a stride, man. We got our stride moving and then that stress comes in, creeps in just a little too much and what happens? We start to lose our footing. The next thing we know, we're tumbling head over heels. We're tumbling through the course and we can't quite seem to pick ourselves up. Many of us get stuck in those moments combating stress. The number one way to combat stress, I'm gonna talk about very briefly and then we'll move on to the major portion of our sermon today. But the number one way to combat stress is to think of others. It's the number one way to mitigate stress. It doesn't fix stress. We'll talk about a fix for stress in a moment. But if you wanna mitigate stress in the moment, think of someone else. Do something for someone else. So we have these back in the back, we have the, at the information table, we have these little bulbs, these little cutout bulbs, Christmas ornaments. On the back of the piece of paper is a child's name and an age, and you're suggested to go buy a top and a pair of pants or some kind of outfit for the child, and then an age-appropriate toy. Take that bulb with you, take it home, and when you're stressed, go to Walmart, go to Target, and think of that child. It will mitigate stress instantly. It's one of the ways, it's one of the tools that we use to mitigate the stress of the Christmas season, even in our kids. We take them with us to Target or to Walmart. We tell them, what toy would you pick out for a boy who's four years old? And they rove the aisles and they argue with one another and they pick out the best toy that they think a four-year-old boy would like to have. And we buy that. Now, every time we go, they whine and complain, dad, dad, can we get something? No, it's not for you today. 
Think of somebody else. It's not for you today. And inevitably when we leave, they settle into a new paradigm. Their paradigm shifts. They're focused on somebody else. And the stress of the moment, the stress of the holiday, the stress or tension even that's in our home starts to dissipate a little bit because their focus, their energy, their attention is now on somebody else. Mitigating stress is as simple as focusing on someone else, but it doesn't fix stress in our life. It actually only alleviates it for the moment, but it's a really good practice. So today, when I ask you to grab one of those ornaments for the kids at the Hope at the Brick House, and these are kids, listen, these are kids, my children will never understand. They will never have one moment of understanding what these kids go through. My kids have everything that they need. All of their needs are met and they always will be. Some of these kids have had some really, really difficult times in life. And fortunately, my kids won't have to experience that. But we wanna do what we can to provide for those kids to provide for those children to look out for their best interests. So that's what we're doing. That's one of the things we're doing this season as we give away from ourselves. So if you have your Bibles, again, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and through verse 17, I'm gonna read first in the Message Bible and then I'll read a little bit in a different translation. It says, don't love the ways, the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love of the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, the wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting and wanting and wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Let me read it in a different translation here so you get the hook here says, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all the things in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and its lusts. But he who does the will of God abides forever." So there's three issues here that come against us that cause stress in our life. There are three fundamental issues we read in this scripture that cause enormous amounts of stress in our life. The first one is the world, the world system around us, the world that wants to control us and manipulate us. And it is used in part and in hand with our adversary, the devil. But the third portion there is the flesh, the flesh suit that we wear, the wants and desires that come from our natural man. These are the three things that cause us the most stress, the world system around us, we need to recognize and realize that we're not of that system, that we're a part of a different system. The adversary who wants to steal, kill, and destroy in our life, he doesn't want to just steal, kill, and destroy you as a person and kill you and leave you dead because in the end you win anyway. If you're in Christ, you find heaven as your home, but he wants to still kill influence and he wants to steal and kill the prosperity that God has promised you. He wants to steal and to kill your health away. There's many things where he wants to steal and to kill in your life and then there is the flesh that has its own sense of wants and desires that ultimately drive us away from God's path for our life. So the devil, he'll use this world system, the mechanisms of this world to get at you, to pit at you. Ryan Fry, for those of you that know, he's a member of our church who's in the military. Uh, Ryan just went back to Afghanistan last week. Pray for him and pray for his family when you think of them. They need all the prayer they can get. He's in, he's in a hostile environment but he's in the military and he knows where he's going and he has to study 
And he has to apply a little strategery. I'll borrow a word there. He has to apply a little strategery against the enemy, against the enemy that if they had their way would come to our shores and try to decimate this nation. So on our behalf, he is out in Afghanistan and they are, they're plotting against the enemy. They're understanding the ways of the enemy. They're doing everything they can to put up a barrier against the enemy. And in doing that, he has a very specific set of goals. If you talk to Ryan, he'll talk way over your head when it comes to military stuff. And half the time I just sit there and nod because I don't have any idea what he's talking about. I've never been in the military, <laughs> but he talks so far over my head sometimes I don't get it. But he has a goal, he has an objective, he has a mission that he's trying to accomplish. And in accomplishing that mission, he is understanding the strategy of the enemy and he does his job and he does it well. Now listen, we have an enemy that the Bible is telling us his strategy. We just read a verse that the scriptures are telling us, here's an enemy who's using a system that's against you. And he'll even use your, your selfish desires and whims and wants, the lusts of the flesh, to push against you. We have to understand the strategery of our enemy so that we can overcome him, so that we can combat him. Now, these tactics of the enemy, this strategery, if we understand it, we can win the battle the first one I wanna talk about today, and we'll talk about a few in the next few weeks, but the first one is the lust of the flesh. Now there's a lot of people that hear the words lust of the flesh and they think of some horrific sin that you can't even talk about in church. And I think it's a little more general than that. I think if we, we narrow it down to its basic definition, the lust of the flesh is the desire of our temporal nature that betrays our eternal design, destiny, and purpose. So there is a lust, there's a hungering, there's a feeding of our flesh, a desire of our temporal nature, this earth suit that'll fade away. There is a desire there that if we give into it, that it will betray our design, our destiny, and our purpose that is in God. It will betray the design, the how God made us, the function that God made us for. It will betray our destiny where we're called to, what we're called to do, and it will betray our purpose, the asking of the question, the why, that keeps us up at night. God, why am I here? What am I here for? God, what's my purpose in life? All of that will be betrayed if we give in to the lust of the flesh. There's a truth that this body is wasting away. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, this, it, says it this way, therefore do not lose heart, Though outwardly you're wasting away, yet inwardly you're being renewed, that this outward flesh is wasting away. We know this to be true. Many of us in our 20s look entirely different than we do today. Many of us in our 20s didn't have the crow's feet setting in and there were no wrinkles on our face and there was no gray hair. We looked totally different. In fact, in my 20s, I could eat anything I wanted to. As long as I put myself under a, a bench press, I gained muscle without even trying. It was awesome. I loved every minute of it. I could eat pizza for lunch, pizza for breakfast, pizza for dinner, pizza for a snack, pizza shot into my veins. I could eat pizza all day and it didn't matter. I didn't gain a pound. Then in my early 30s, a little bit of pizza and I had to work real hard to get it off. And now approaching 40, I look at a piece of pizza and I gain 15 pounds. The body is dying. We watch it die. We watch it decay. We watch it fade away. The, the fact is, the moment you take your first breath, you start the dying process. The moment that baby comes out and sucks in that first birth of, uh, a burst of air, it starts to decay and to die. And for most of us, that'll take a lifetime. 
But the reality is this outward vessel, this flesh vessel is dying, yet we tend to give it priority. When it's hungry, when it says, feed me, we feed it. Some of us feed it too much. I know I'm guilty of that from time to time. We give into that lustful desire of the flesh and we consume and we consume. And some of us consume in other areas. We've got the feeding thing down. We, we do the right thing there. We don't overindulge in food, but maybe we, we consume other things and we have debts that grow and grow and grow because we can't help but consume and consume and consume. And maybe we consume on another level. We just consume too much of the chatter. We wanna hear everything that's going on so that gossiping train we're a part of because we consume, consume for more information. We might even guise it in prayer. Oh, you better pray for them, bless their heart. But did you hear this? Anyway, I won't stay on that too long. But we tend to consume because the lust of the flesh is moving us in areas that are betraying our heart and our purpose and our destiny. Galatians chapter five and verse 16 and 17, it says this. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusts or wars spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish listen the bible's real clear here he's saying there's a war within your members there's a war within your members that says, I wanna do the right thing. I wanna do the things of God. I wanna be bent towards the purpose of God for my life. But there's something at me that pulls and pulls that lust of the flesh. And the Bible's real clear. It says, if you walk in the spirit and so many of us hang our hats on this and say, okay, that's the Holy Spirit. I just need to be more empowered of God. It's not at all what it's saying. It's saying, listen, there's a spirit on the inside of you. Every one of us is created, spirit, soul, body. The spirit can lead first where the body has to be subject to what the spirit wants. The spirit is always driven towards, the spirit is always driven towards the things of God. It's the part that's in communion with God. It's the part that's in communion with the Holy Spirit. It's the, spar it's the part that sometimes doesn't, doesn't have the loudest voice, but it's the part that puts on the brakes and puts up the warning when we know we've gone too far. And the fleshly side of us says, nah, just give in, keep doing it. One more piece of pizza, who cares, have another. One more credit card, come on, what's the worst that could happen? You'll pay the minimums, it's all right. And the spirit will put the brakes and say, no, 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 you need to be healthy, put that down. Shut up, spirit. The spirit will put the brakes on us and say, no, no, you don't need that credit card. You don't need to just feel good by some retail therapy. Put the card down, put it away. No, no, I gotta have it. I've got to have it. See, we get caught up at times between the lust and the desires of the flesh and where the spirit would guide us and lead us. I'm gonna give an example, it might be kind of crass. I gave it at the first service, but it's a good example. When I was younger and especially hormonal, you know, there's an image that I held in my mind of what a woman should look like. And when I saw that, it was tempting, it was desirable. I met my wife, we've been in a long-standing relationship. I love her dearly. And because of the deep-seated love that we have and the retraining of my heart and my mind towards spiritual things, that's not as much of a desire anymore. It doesn't mean I don't have hormones. It doesn't mean I don't notice an attractive woman but it does mean that I'm committed somewhere by my spirit first, and this is my first reality. This is my first connection point. This is what I go to first and primarily. Doesn't mean that, I don't, that I'm not tempted, but I'm not nearly as tempted as I was. And I didn't give this example last service, but I'll give it this one because she's not here. But we went out on a date one time when we were younger, 
And I'm, we're sitting here in this booth and we're talking, we're having a good time and we're just, you know, just on that, that first season of dating or that first couple months. And this girl walks in who's very attractive and dressed in a very provocative way. And she very much noticed that I saw this girl walk in. And my wife looked at me, well, my, my someday would-be wife looked at me and said, what are you doing? And I looked at her and I said, you know, I really wish more girls would dress like you not that slutty. <laughs> she said, you liar. You liked everything about that. I said, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. So, and we went on with the meal. But the reality is, it's not that I don't, not that those, those, those enticements aren't there, but when I push that down and let the spirit rise up, the spirit says, no, you're in a committed relationship with your wife. You're in covenant between God and your wife. That's what motivates, not the attachment of the flesh, not the pull of the flesh. You're motivated first by the covenant you have with her. That means more than momentary excitement. And that's where we want to be when the spirit, our spirit man moves us first and primary and the flesh is secondary. Where the, the spirit says, says I, I am in the lead. I am first. I'm making this, the, the, the decisions for us. Almost feels like you're schizophrenic, but it's the, it's the parsing out of our person. That we are spirit, we have a soul, and we live in a body. We have the spirit that will live forever, a constant communion with God, constant connection with God, that when we're saved, it's what's reborn. When the Bible says that you are born again, as Nicodemus said, how could I possibly go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, no, you'll be born of the spirit. This spirit is what we're talking about. It becomes renewed and it becomes born again. And in being born again, then we have a soul, a mind, a will, and emotions that, that waft between our lustly flesh of our lustly desires of the flesh and what we know to do that's the right thing to do that we are in that constant balance of back and forth and our soul our mind our will and emotions are what help navigate the terrain between the spirit and the flesh and we learn how to develop that as we move on in life as a pastor i get to sit with people in some very very hard situations. One of the reasons that stress is difficult in, in the Christmas season is some of us will have our first Christmas season without a loved one. Some of us will have our first Christmas season where a relationship isn't what it was. Some of us will have their first Christmas season and there's someone at the table that we're missing for one reason or another. There's real pain and real issues there. There's real struggle, there's real hurt there. As we said before, this body, this, this earthen vessel passes away and it dies. As a pastor, I get to sit with people on their deathbed. People I loved, people I've prayed with, people I've believed with, people I've connected with, people I've spoken with and spoken over. And there's this moment where even if they're sick, there's still life there and there's hope there. That even though they're sick and even though it could be cancer or an, another disease that is just rapidly taking them from this earth, you see the body declining. Even though that's there, when life is there, there's still a sense of hope. When that spirit is there. But when that spirit leaves the body, the lungs stop moving and the heart stops beating Something happens. You can feel it in the room. It's almost like you can feel like a vacuum sucking something out of the room. And all of a sudden, what was life and hope 
you can tell, is just a vessel. It's empty. Not that we don't love that person and not that that body isn't someone that we would still care for, but it's just not the same. Instantly, you can see the body start to, start to decay rapidly. It's a phenomenon that's hard to understand until we place until we place the spirit in its prominent nature of where it should be in our life, that our spirit man, our inward man, is that strong that when there is life and the spirit is there, everything in our body, even though the body itself could be riddled with disease, there's just that sense of hope that's resonant. There's just that sense of peace that's resonant. But when that spirit leaves, that body becomes the shell that it always was. Empty. No real meaning anymore. Spirituality is not an epiphany. Spirituality is not a moment, an aha moment where we say, okay, I'm spiritual now. Spirituality is not, is not gold dust and feathers and however the Bible describes the presence of God in our midst, the train filling the temple, the fog or the, the cloud of his presence. That's not spirituality. That's an effect of our spirit man leading first. That's an effect of our spirit man saying, I will be first. And because he is first and primary, he is in constant communion with God. And the more he's first, the more of God's presence is realized even on a natural plane even on a, what would be considered a mystical level, that we experience things that we never knew were possible because the spirit led first, not the flesh to question, to wonder, and to drive us away from his ultimate presence. Romans chapter seven and verse 18 says this, and this is from the Message Bible. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I need something more for if I know the law but can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps, uh, uh, within me keeps sabotaging my intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in action. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. This is Paul speaking. This is a man who is considered the top theologian of the New Testament, top apostle of the New Testament. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, so we really should be listening to his words. This is a man who thousands of years after his death, people still argue about the nuance of what he said. Yet we understand this scripture very clearly, that he said in his flesh state, being ruled by his outward man, that there is a war going on, that the inward man wants to do the right thing and the outward man always wants to do something contrary to the will of God. And that more often than not, he would try to do what the inward man said to do. He would try to be motivated by that inward man and he would fall on his face. More often than not, he wanted to do what was the will of God, but he couldn't find and muster up the strength to do it. Now let's read real quickly here in 2 Corinthians 4 and 16, because he also wrote this. Uh, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though the outward man is perishing. The inward man is being renewed day by day, that there's a renewal of the inward person. 
Uh, that if we'll be honest with ourselves, if we'll fall in love with the word of God, if we'll fall in love with his presence in our life, that there's a renewal that can happen in our inward man, that though the outward man may be perishing, though that he is not bent on the good will of God, though that he is not bent on the purposes of God, that even though he is perishing, even though he is ultimately dying, that our spirit can be strengthened and renewed. First John 3 and 9 says it like this, says no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God sees, or because God's seed, sorry, remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Let's read that one more time. First John three and nine. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Nicodemus again said, God, how do I get born again? Do I go back into my mother's womb? No, the spirit is renewed. The spirit is restored. The spirit is reborn. And once it's reborn, we don't have to fall prey to the sin, the pressure of this world and the flesh that wants to entice us. We have a way out, a way of escape. It's listening to the spirit. We have to be motivated, we have to be pushed and prodded by the Holy Spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit's job to make the choice. It's the Spirit on the inside of us taking the reins and becoming the, coming to the forefront of our life. That the Spirit becomes the guiding force. To put away our ugly sweaters around Christmas, to put away what's comfortable, to put away the behavior patterns that we just go to randomly because they're what we're used to, to put that away, we have to listen to the Spirit. How different would it look if we were guided primarily by the Spirit in all that we do? You might be hell-bent on putting up all the Christmas decorations and the Spirit may say, no, stop, you need to rest. Although you might be like me and be hell-bent on not putting up any decorations and the Spirit tell you, shut up and listen to your wife. We don't always know based on the outer workings of where the Spirit's leading us. That's why the Bible calls this voice still and small. He whispers to our heart and he guides us if we'll listen. The hard part is, is quieting the flesh because the flesh wants to speak up loudly. When the flesh is hungry, when your stomach starts growling, it's like, yep, got to eat right now. Let's go. Where are we going? The Spirit might say, calm down a little bit. Maybe you need to hold off. Just maybe you need to pull that desire just for food into subjection to the inner man, to the inner spirit. Maybe the spirit tells us, I don't want to, uh, you need to get up about an hour earlier so that you can read the Bible. And our flesh says, I'm sleeping in. Those kids were up way too late last night. No, get up, do what he's called you to. The spirit at many times is, is invoked in my, my heart to go speak to someone and I feel awkward and I don't feel like I have the right words to say and I don't feel motivated enough. And so I've said, nah, the flesh has said, nah, I don't, I don't wanna do that. And I missed that opportunity. There have been other times where the spirit has said, go and do and I've gone and I've done. And even though it was awkward and I didn't like it and it didn't, it didn't necessarily fit the context of my life that day, God worked out a miracle. 
God has so ruined my plans so many different ways from Sunday. It is unbelievable. Every time I think I have it written down, typed out, ready to go, something changes because he ultimately knows better. The spirit is ultimately in connection with God. It's the part that prays so intimately that intercedes for us based on its relationship with the father because it's never cut off. And that if we would just listen to it, it's like a download from heaven of where God is leading us. But we have to learn to quiet the flesh. Number one way, as I said before, to mitigate stress in our life is to think of someone else. The number one way to quiet your flesh is to think of someone else. They go hand in hand. Mitigating stress and listening to the spirit go hand in hand. If we're to mitigate stress, Think of someone else, focus on them first. If we're to listen to the spirit, think of someone else. Where is he calling you to? Who is he putting in your path? What person does he want you to speak to? What relationship is he asking you to build? Where is he leading you in the context of your everyday life to make an impact for the kingdom? I think for many of us, the question still remains, but how do, how do we hear? Like, how do we hear the voice of the spirit? How do we know that's, that's his voice and not our voice? The Bible's real clear. It says the sheep of God, his sheep know his voice. The shepherd is, speaks to us in a way that we recognize it almost instantly. We, we feel and understand when God speaks because we hear the voice of the shepherd. We might not want to go. We might not want to do it, but we know that still small voice. We know what it is. And it's not always a no. Sometimes it's a go. And sometimes it's not a go and sometimes it's a no. But we have to learn the difference between the two that when he motivates our hearts that we don't stop and pause and wonder and allow our flesh to take over and put it on the back burner, but we go instantly to what he's called us to, even when it doesn't make sense. This Christmas season, if you're to get out of the old ugly sweater, if you're to get out of the old way of doing things, if you're to get out of the old habits, Listen to the Spirit. Listen to your Spirit. Pray to the Holy Spirit, but listen to your Spirit. What is He calling you to do? Where is He leading you? Where is He guiding you? What is He motivating in your heart? I can guarantee you this when the Spirit speaks, it's almost never self gratification. You know, the Spirit's never told me to eat another piece of pizza, Spirit's never told me to go get another credit card. Spirit's always said, this is not for you, but I want to work through you. This is not for you, but the for you part comes after the through you part. And if you just get in connection, if you just get in unison, you'd realize that what's best for you is what I can get through you. But our flesh wants to keep and to hoard. Our flesh wants to build up bigger barns. Our flesh wants to say there's limited resources. And he's saying, no, 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 listen, listen. What I can get through you will do more for you than you could possibly imagine. Start to listen to the voice of the Spirit. Amen?